0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey.
2: For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is Synolytics. Synolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days Use code DAVE at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash DAVE. Use code DAVE. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, And spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. Hey everyone,
1: it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is about the Pollyanna hypothesis. This is the idea that people prefer to look on the bright side of things. A new study actually showed that it's correct. Scientists looked at usage of billions of words in 10 different languages and found that people prefer to use positive language even when they talk about things that aren't so positive. There's a classic book called The Good Soldier, and it sounds all happy, but the first sentence is, this is the saddest story I've ever heard. The publishers made the author change the title to something misleadingly upbeat because they knew that it would create more sales. The sad soldier just isn't quite the same. Today's guest has written a book called Hardwiring Happiness, as well as one called Buddha's Brain and a couple others called Just One Thing and Mother Nurture. He's the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and you may have seen him on NPR, CBS, BBC, or on Huffington Post, or at his website, Your Wise Brain or Psychology Today. And he is none other than Rick Hansen, a pretty well-known guy. Rick, welcome to the show. Dave, truly. It's already a pleasure to be here. You're a really interesting guy. And and you were on uh, my list of people I really wanted to chat with. And I think you actually reached out to say, hey, we should chat. I'm like, wow, yeah. this, this is why I love doing Bulletproof Radio, because it gives yeah. me a chance to have these conversations that I would have had over coffee anyway. In fact, oh, wait, I, I am actually having it over coffee, at least Me virtually. too. <laughs> So, um, by the way, that was not a well-planned, shameless plug. That was me actually (laughs) drinking coffee, in case you're wondering in your car, going, did Dave really do that? Yeah, I just did. You did. I saw him. (laughs) Um, By the way, most people listening are probably driving or or doing something else. And some percentage are on our YouTube channel where they can see high-quality video of both of us and, and all that sort of thing. So if you're sitting at your computer, log into YouTube. It's pretty cool. And if not, keep driving. And you don't have to look at anything except the car in front of you. Now, Rick, what made you study happiness so much? Like, did you have a bad childhood? Like, where'd this come from?
3: Um, yeah, I did kind of have a crummy childhood. It wasn't horrible, and uh, it wasn't mostly my parents' fault. It was a lot of little things. But the short version is that, I, I bet like you, when I was young, I had this knowing somehow, I couldn't really put it into words, that people could be a lot happier. And they actually looked like in my family, in my neighborhood, at my school, the grown-ups bickering with each other, running around, and all the rest of that. And I just began a long inquiry into that territory, eventually becoming a psychologist along the way, starting to meditate in 1974, and then getting deeply interested in the underlying hardware of the brain uh, starting around 15, 20 years ago when we started learning enough about the brain to be actually useful in practical terms. And so kind of putting it together, psychology, neuroscience, Contemplative wisdom—it's kind of a sweet spot. If you're interested in biohacking, I mean, that's the sweet spot—the intersection of those three circles.
1: So you—you you grew up. You—you you weren't particularly like in a war-torn part of the world, but—but no. but not particularly just just glowing with happiness either. And you thought you could do better. Yeah. Not a lot of people in 1974. Actually, maybe that's not true. There was a '70s time of of meditation, and uh, you just didn't stop in the '80s, I guess. That's right. Uh, when everyone got jobs, but
3: yeah, that's right. That's right. I needed to meditate to survive my jobs.
1: A, a lot of people are are now coming out of the closet as meditators. Yeah. Right. Where before it was like something that that you like you kind of needed to hide, and and now. Uh, there are lots of CEOs. Arianna Huffington's been on the show, and, and she talks openly about it. And uh, even some of the more unusual things like Steve Jobs talked about using hallucinogens to reach yes. these altered states that helped him make you know, iPhones. And so there's clearly something non-rational going on in high performance. What's your take, having studied brain structure and neuroscience and happiness, which is not a, it's not a rational thing. Happiness is, by definition, not a thought. Right? What what's come about? Like, if, if you were to share one overarching hypothesis from what you've learned about this, I, I'd really love to sort of get tell me about happiness. Like, what is this thing?
3: Well, first, I, I'm not sure I'd agree with you that okay, happiness yeah. and rationality are in different planes. I mean, I think you're talking about you know just sort of like pure thought, distinct from feelings, bodies, yeah, th- there you go, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, a couple of things. So the word happiness, I'm using it as a global state of well-being and okay. resilience. So it's not just, oh, la-di-da, you know, the <laughs> Golden Gate Warriors won the NBA championship. Go the Golden Gate Warriors, Golden State Warriors. Right? I'm from California, so I was glad about that, San Francisco. Um, but I, I really mean uh, happiness is a state basically in which you can deal with life's challenges, but in your core, you still have a, Um, An increasingly unconditional sense of well-being. So how do you grow up that sense of well-being inside dealing with life's challenges when you're not It's easy to be happy when you're on the hammock drinking your Mai Tai. Someone's rubbing your feet. Okay, that's hard not to be happy then but um, How do you be happy while dealing with a really stressful job or grinding through school or dealing with? You know the realities of raising kids running around, you know your hair on fire. That's what really interests me So the question is How do you grow resources inside? There's this basic equation in healthcare that says life's about three factors in this equation, challenges, vulnerabilities, and resources. Uh, We try to deal with the challenges, reduce them, we try to shore up vulnerabilities, but where we have the most opportunity is building resources. And you can grow resources out in the world, in your body, or in your mind, all All three are important, it's not either or. But again, where do we have the most opportunity usually? It's growing resources in our mind. And so that became very interesting to me, you know, that one box of nine, as it were, mental resources where we have great opportunity and responsibility. And then, then that took me to, and I'm sure we'll get into it, how do you beat the negativity bias of the brain? So even though there's a maybe Pollyanna effect for how people spin things, there's a grumpy bear effect, <laughs> you know, <laughs> grouchy dwarf effect for how the brain internalizes our experiences, yeah. the way I put it we have got a brain that's like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. And so what I've gotten very interested in is how do you basically uh, rest your attention usefully, and then how do you uh, basically internalize what you rest your attention upon so that it goes into you, rather than washing through your brain like water through a sieve. I mean, the dirty little secret is, one, we grow resources inside from experiences of them, but most of those experiences are wasted on the brain. They're not internalized. They're not encoded or hardwired, so they're, they don't have any kind of lasting value. They're better than a stick in the eye in the moment, but they don't help us learn, grow, develop, and so forth. So I've gotten very interested in meta-learning. How do you learn how to learn? In other words, but emotional learning, body learning, motivational learning, social learning, spiritual learning, um, you know, life learning. And we can talk about the how of doing that, but that's gotten me very interested. You know, How do you actually steepen the learning curve every day so you get the most out of your useful experiences rather than you know, wasting them on your brain? So I wanna make sure we talk about
1: uh, neurofeedback and biofeedback and quantified self and things like that which seem to be hot topics there. But before I, maybe I, I lead us down that path, what are your most important ways of of steepening that learning curve, and it's and t- tell me if what I'm suggesting there is totally not the way you would do it. I, that's yeah. just the, what came to mind, but I want to know what, what you think yeah. are the very most important techniques for people.
3: Yeah, exactly right. So, <clears throat> really, kind of fast here. The you know, there's a saying: neurons that fire together wire together. Okay, so at the kind of top level of writing symphonies, building businesses, uh, understanding, you know, another person deeply, the brain's incredibly sophisticated. But down in the belly of the beast, as it were, it's really mechanical. In other words, the longer those neurons are firing, the more intensely they're firing, the more in your body as a whole they're firing, the more they're firing based on a sense of novelty and personal relevance, the more they're going to encode the experience in implicit memory, lasting memory. So uh, what I teach a lot of, and I've done it a lot myself, is this process I call taking in the good, where essentially you're working with the two-stage process of learning. If you think about it, Dave, we learn all kinds of stuff, right? How often do we learn how to learn? How often are we-
1: Very infrequently.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So the how to learn, to boil it down, is just two stages, activation installation. We have to have an experience. We start with some kind of state. But if we want to have it make any difference tomorrow, it has to become something of a trait, has to move from state to trait, activation to installation, short-term memory buffers, long-term storage. So we pay a lot of attention to having nice experiences, you know, useful thoughts and perspectives, um, you know, pleasant sensations in the body, positive emotions like gratitude or compassion, things like that. But we don't pay much attention to taking that activated state and encoding it in our brain bit by bit, a dozen or so seconds at a time. So to bring that down to earth, uh, what I do is, number one, I try to have beneficial experiences in the first place, usually because yeah. they're already happening. You know, right. it's, it's cool. This is cool. You're a cool guy. You This is back and forth. This is nice. Or, or create it. Think of something beneficial, like bringing up something you're grateful for. Or call up the body memory. I've done a lot of rock climbing of pulling over a ledge because you got to assert yourself in a tough situation. All right, you have the state activated. Now what are you going to do with it, right? If you want to install it, number one, enrich it. And there are five known factors in the neuropsychology of learning that steep in enriching. Really common sense, duration. The longer you experience something, the deeper it goes. Negative experiences get encoded like that really fast, you know, once burned, twice shy. Positive experiences, you need to stay with them 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row so they can actually transfer from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. Otherwise, that moment of inner strength, of confidence, of commitment to sobriety, of commitment to, you know, uh, drinking your coffee every day, whatever it might be, it doesn't sink in. So right. those five. So the five factors are duration, intensity, multimodality. In other words, the more you feel it in your body, the more it becomes emotional, not just conceptual. Um, also, fourth factor, novelty. The more you can see these experiences, like Zen mind, beginner's mind, you know, through the eyes of a child. And then last, personal relevance, number five. Why would it matter to me to, for example, feel cared about by other people, given that I had a childhood, actually, in which I was very shy and dorky and felt really inferior and very young going through school? Uh, so uh, those five factors uh, really make a difference. So the more that, in you know, half, a handful of times a day, half a dozen times a day, less than half a minute at a time, if you just really stay with these experiences and help them sink in, you gradually increase resources inside yourself um, uh, for feeling strong, for feeling resilient, confident, and also more capable, you know, in your own relationships. And I find that it's really easy for people to dismiss this as positive thinking. I don't believe in positive thinking. I don't believe in realistic thinking. I want to see the whole mosaic of reality. And the other thing is, it's not just about smell the flowers, la-di-da. It's about, hey, when you're in a business meeting and you're scared to say something but you actually speak up and it goes kind of reasonably all right don't waste that moment take a moment to actually experience it and help it sink in or when your uh, you know kid gives you a big hug daddy i love you mommy i love you you know be there for it take a few moments you know half 5 10 20 seconds to really let it sink in uh, if you're Um, let's say, trying to motivate yourself to do more exercise, and like I am, and uh, when you do exercise and you actually experience something rewarding from it, really take it in so you're more inclined to do your workout the next day, right? Um, Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And then finishing up here, what's really powerful is to know what your issue is in some area, and then ask yourself, what's the resource experience that's the perfect antidote for that issue? or the perfect muscle I need to build, metaphorically speaking, inside my mind to deal with that issue. Maybe I'm, you know, for example, uh, nervous about approaching new people. Uh, I just feel kind of shy about it. Okay, what are the experiences that would, um, and that would grow resources inside to deal with that issue? Like feeling strong or understanding that other people are shy and insecure too, right? also, for example, taking in experiences in which other people are actually caring. So it sinks in and you feel more confident going forward. Uh, and when you know what you, those, that medicine is, right, it changes your whole day. You're looking for those little opportunities, okay, half a dozen times a day uh, to take in the key experiences that will grow inside you, the resources that will change your life for the better.
1: A lot of what you're talking about there is, is forgetfulness, which is one of the Buddhist hindrances, and you wrote the Buddha's brain. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we can just go there. All right. So we have these, uh, these experiences, yeah. but they're so ephemeral that we forget them before they stick. So yeah. what you're, you're asking people to do or, or teaching them to do is to somehow remember these things and to internalize them yeah so let's say that i'm I'm having we're having a great conversation right now we actually are right and i'm I'm curious i'm interested and so Mm -hmm. these are things that i want to remember yeah what's going to make me remember them better
3: right um duration so holding them in awareness a few extra seconds you know a typical neuron is firing five to 50 times a second the refresh rate in the neural substrates of consciousness, of key part, working memory, upper outer frontal, that's why I'm tapping my forehead like a weirdo. Yeah, prefrontal cortex, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Um, Those uh, neural substrates refresh like a computer monitor, five, six times a second. So it's really fast. So a handful of extra seconds, staying with it. Also, if it became more intense, for example, if it was the only thing you were thinking of or was held in awareness, it would become effectively more intense as a thought, or as a body sensation, or an emotion, or a desire, those are kind of part of the major aspects of our experiences, to feel it more. Then it's gonna sink in more, right? The more you feel it in your body, the more it's gonna sink in, you know, keep, right? Okay. Yeah.
1: A lot of the, the personal growth things. Well, can there. I go back to
3: forgetfulness? Oh, yeah, it's really yeah. interesting, you, may, you know this already, the root of the word for mindfulness In the language of early Buddhism, Pali, P-A-L-I, the root of that word, sati, is memory. It's about recollectedness, a kind of metacognitive looping where we're recollected with our experience. That's what mindfulness is, rather than, as you put it, forgetful. And that's what I'm really talking about, being there for the experience. And then in this funny little context in which you recognize the impermanence of experience, you're letting go of it while you're experiencing it. You're also receptively intimate with it so that it can sink down into you, literally, encoding its way. um, In comes some kind of lasting change in neural structure or function. And it's really interesting that in our culture, which is very pleasure-seeking, it's a little bit like the Tibetan metaphor of the land of the hungry ghosts, you know, symbolized as godlike Creatures with enormous superpowers, you know, kind of modern Americans today in a lot of ways, you know, who at the same time have vast appetites symbolized by these ginormous bellies with the capacity to satisfy their appetites as like pinhole mouths. And I think there are many ways in which many, many people scratch and claw to have experiences of accomplishment or success or material possessions that are enjoyable or experiences that are enjoyable where they pile up you know, they collect social supplies from other people, you know, they impress other people. How, how's my brand trending today, you know? All that stuff, and yet they're not there to enjoy it. They're not right. there to receive the experience and actually have it sink in. Or they flit from, frankly, one self-help thing to another, you know? Uh, I'm in that marketplace as you are as well. You know, people doing this training, reading that book, chasing that guru, practicing that meditation, except they're not there to receive the fruits of their efforts. So it actually changes their brain for the better over time. And that's poignant. And it creates a lot of unnecessary suffering and lost opportunities to grow the good in, in your brain, in your life. It, it seems like the, the part
1: of my brain that, that likes to forget things uh, doesn't work very well when there's people watching it and, and I, I would argue that that's an ego process. Huh. So when, when I do the, this 40 years of Zen, it's a neurofeedback-based thing to, to mm-hmm. teach you more of the compassion yeah. and gratitude and, and the, the felt sense of, of advanced Zen states. Um, when, uh, when we do that with clients or when, when I do it myself, we always have a little video camera running and there's a small group of people because then if you talk about something, it's kind of like when you come out of a dream in, in the morning, if you write it down or you tell someone, it becomes cemented, but otherwise it's ephemeral and it goes away. And, and it seems like most of the good, like spiritual progress or or you know new states that I've discovered, I really do forget about them unless like oh yeah I wrote that down and all of a sudden it closes that loop. So I, I was expecting in your your list of five things that you would say people could do would was have someone tell someone about it. Or, oh, okay. you know, right. journal about it or something like that. I was surprised it wasn't in there. But is there a place for journaling or talking to a friend or, or going to a men's group or a women's group or, you know, sewing circle? I have no idea what happens in women's groups. I don't go to them. But they do something fun, I'm sure. So <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever those talking things are that we've always done as people, is that part of this?
3: Oh, sure. Okay, so um, let's see. First, in terms of remembering things, uh, pulling up. Useful experiences like pulling up this conversation, let's say, with you, Dave, or pulling up uh, the time in the body. um, I felt really strong and powerful in a wilderness situation, say Um, there's a place for calling up uh, what are called explicit memories, you know, recollections of of particular events. Um, But where the most juice is, is activating more like body states. Not so much recollections of particular events or particular statements that people have said to us, uh, because we go through life as an experiencing body. It's interesting. Again, speaking of mindfulness, you know, the first place to establish mindfulness, taught by the Buddha, is the body itself, and it's a matter of waking down, not just waking up. All right. So that's one thing. Second, in terms of what intensifies encoding in installation. You know, if you, if you know the old joke, like real estate boils down to three things, location, location, location. Mm-hmm. Learning boils down to three things, installation, installation, installation. No installation, no learning. It's okay. profoundly powerful to think about that um, and to realize how little installation actually occurs in the flow of everyday life because we skitter onto the next experience so quickly that the current beneficial experience, held in short-term memory buffers, does not have time to sink down. Okay. So then the question is, what heightens installation? And I think there are, in the research on the neuropsychology of learning, there are these five major factors that have gone through. In other words, duration, intensity, multimodality, novelty, and salience, salience, personal relevance. But inside those, there are lots of very familiar methods um, that are an aspect, for example, multimodality, using your whole body or using many senses, writing it down use is multimodality. You're engaging it conceptually, you're also sustaining the duration of it. Sharing about good things with other people, that's a very powerful way to take in the good, to internalize these experiences, which also has a number of bonus benefits because you're having this great interaction with somebody else, right? And it's very salient, you know, it's very personally relevant when we're interacting with another person. Uh, Those are also very good methods. I think, in other words, many teachers of various kinds, therapists, formal teachers, fifth grade teachers, you know, good teachers learn to do this informally and intuitively because it's what works. But what's interesting to me is, is that with all the self-help that's out there, we have not really focused on the how of self-help. How do we help this help really help, you know, <laughs> rather than being just one more good idea, Right. You think about all the wisdom of the ages over millennia and to what extent is it really sunk in uh, to our own heart, let's say, one's thinking about that personally uh, and how can we help it sink in for other people? Uh, yeah.
1: Speaking of other people, uh, we're talking about this as, as two adults with fully formed prefrontal cortexes. Uh-huh. If yeah. that's the plural of cortex, it could be yeah. cortex I, I have no idea. Cortices, but yeah. Uh, there you go. Two cortices walk into a bar, anyway. Yeah,
3: that's it. Little... <laughs> so, and they both fall down because they're concussed, right? Nice. <laughs> you know that one. Okay.
1: Uh, so we are, uh, we're talking about this as, as adults. What would you change in, in that list or just in those techniques yeah. if, say, we're talking about uh, kids? And, and maybe there's a couple different areas. One would be the developing mind, say, under 10 years old. The other one would be teenagers, and then there's this weird time between 20 and 25 where yeah. you're you're an adult, but your brain isn't quite done cooking. And yeah. there's a lot of people listening right now who are, are right in that yeah. uh, in that thing, and, and their brains are not quite the same as yours and mine. So, so walk me through what you would do as a parent for a younger child, as a teen, and then as a young adult.
3: Sure. Um, so I, I work with people of those various ages, I have a lot of background, you know, with youth, and I would say first that. Uh, before a kid is about four years old, uh, caregivers sort of need to induct them into experiences and then help those experiences last. And again, teachers and caregivers naturally kind of do that. They keep a good thing going with some intuition that that's what you got to do to help it sink in. That makes a lot of sense. From about um, you know four, five, six years old on. I think uh, one thing that parents can do is in the flow of everyday life, not to be annoying. Right? We've got two adult kids, so I've been down this road before. You know, <laughs> having your dad as a shrink is a mixed bag. But anyway, um, my point about that is, you know, to, you know over the course of a day, maybe once, if it's appropriate to remind a child, hey, honey, that's really sweet. Let's take a moment to let this one sink in. You know, you you got an A on your paper. You scored that goal in soccer. The cool girls invited you to sit with them in seventh grade lunch table. You know, why not let that one sink in? And also a nice thing that parents can do with kids who will put up with this up to about age 14 because it extends their bedtime. A few nights a week, just take a little longer to go over the day and reflect on what was good about it or in the moment, what was beneficial. And the parent can also nominate certain things or suggest certain things to focus on if they know where the hole in the kid's heart is, as I put it. You know, what is that issue that's unmet? Maybe this is a child who is a little lonely, moved to a new school. So emphasizing social experiences that really relate to that. Maybe we'll get to this later. I've got a model about all this that relates to the evolution of the brain, the lizard brainstem, mouse, as it were, mammalian subcortex, and then more primate human cortex or three needs, safety, satisfaction, connection. It's a way to think about this stuff. So come back to that. Um, So taking them through it for two, three minutes just before bed. I've known a number of parents that have done that. Very powerful thing to do. I mean, it's got built-in implicit benefits. You're getting attention from your parent. It's a nice little moment, but also you are internalizing neurons that fire together, wire together. Uh, You're internalizing that experience. Teens. you want to say something? Yeah. Like I
1: just say every night before bed, I've got a five and an eight-year-old. Every night we we do, uh, gratefuls. They have yeah. to find three things they're grateful for and talk about them. Yeah. And we also do a win, like something you worked on that you got, and we do a fail, like yeah. something that that you worked on that you didn't get. And I go, that was a good job because you you worked on it. Like like you can hey, turn it into a win That is tomorrow. really
3: good parenting. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Including the fail parts, you know that one really pops. Yeah. yeah. That's great to normalize failure. That's great.
1: Yeah, so there's no fear of it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that was a big motivator for me. A fear of failure, you know, you can succeed yeah. while you're running from something, but it's a lot more fun to succeed when you're running towards something.
3: Yeah. Oh, totally. That's great. You're intuitively doing this. And what I would just draw attention to is the distinction between activation and installation. In other words, okay, now the kid is thinking about this, number one, are they? is it an embodied experience besides just being a memory or a thought? Ah. number one and number two are they staying with that embodied experience 510 seconds straight so it can actually start really encoding as a lasting change in neural structure or function
1: good idea so I, I could stretch that out a bit all right I'll, I'll tweak that protocol yeah that's the bit. thing
3: that's the whole point and it's it's embarrassing to realize as of one dad to another etc how often the well-intended beneficial states that we activate in our kid's brain, sheet over uh, their mind, sheet over their brain like water across a driveway without sinking in because we don't slow it down enough. We're not patient enough or uh, neurologically aware enough as it were in a sense thinking about the brain behind the eyes that's trying to form structure out of this passing experience so it has some kind of lasting value. Right? Very cool. It changes. I... It changes how you parent. It changes how you teach. It changes how you do therapy or coaching. Um, to really to to focus on others as sponges. You know what's sinking in. That's the whole point. Cool.
1: This is this is really really neat. I'm I'm excited to get a chance to try that with kids.
3: Thank oh you. yeah, yeah, and teens a little older. Uh, I find I, I emphasize autonomy. You're in charge of your brain. All these people are trying to stick stuff into your brain all day long, teachers, grown-ups, the man, and who's in charge of that process? Your brain's being constantly changed by what flows through it. Are you in charge of that, or are they in charge of that? Mm. You know, that's very motivating for a teenager economy. And um, also, uh, I say, look, it's up to you, but you get to be the source of the being you're becoming. What do you want to grow inside yourself? Whatever, there's a traditional saying what you rest your mind upon, your mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon, right? These days, your brain takes its shape from whatever you repeatedly rest your mind upon. If you repeatedly- so like, like
1: like Facebook, basically?
3: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> By what experiences are you having? It's like, if you, a lot of people with their, me included, repeatedly resting on my mind upon pressure, gotta get all this stuff done, boom, 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 boom. boom. Do you still like me? why did that guy give me a one-star review on Amazon? Because his Kindle didn't work properly. And you're like, <laughs> what? That's that's not about my book. It'll, or, you know, that's where we rest our minds or self-criticism or woulda, coulda, shoulda, or, you know, regrets and or resentments. All those people. Or, right? Well, guess what? You do that. Your brain will take a different shape over time. It'll become more and more reactive to stress. Uh, it'll become... There's some vicious cycles involving the stress hormone cortisol that are not good for us. Uh, you, it'll tend to become... Uh, it'll deplete uh, reserves of serotonin and other neurotransmitters that, you know, help us stay balanced if we rest our mind upon negative things all day long. On the other hand, if you rest your mind on the real, actual, authentic, usually mild, but real, you know, beneficial moments of everyday life. Something's beautiful. You dodged a bullet. Ain't dead yet. You know, you push a lever and that toilet flushes. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing, right? Uh, Someone's nice to you. Your cat crawls into your lap. You get a tricky email out the door. You know, those are opportunities to rest your mind on those things rather than just missing it. I think so many of us, honestly, me included, um, certainly in the past, miss the good facts around us. And then if we see them, we don't let ourselves have good experiences as a result. And then especially, even if we see the fact and feel something like, oh, you know, it's nice to be alive. We don't stay with it. Those few extra seconds, half a dozen seconds, of one, two dozen seconds in a row, so it can actually sink into us. And, you know, I find talking about this with kids, they get it quickly. They're, they're weirdly fascinated in the brain. Uh, and then young adults, that wonderful age, I think mean, it's a fantastic age you talked about. Um, on the one hand, we make choices at that age. I made choices at that age that are hugely consequential because they're, you know, They uh, ripple out over the lifespan. But we make those choices with pretty limited capacities, uh, including knowledge of the world altogether. So it's this bad fit of big consequences, reduced capacity. So at that age, I think it's especially important as well um, to look for those opportunities to, in other words, what do you want to grow inside yourself these days? What, if it were more present in your own mind, would make up? big difference for you these days, a good difference for you these days. And then look for the opportunities to legitimately have an experience of that. For example, maybe it's about feeling more cared about. That was a huge issue for me in my um, late teens and early 20s, starting to feel appreciated and included and seen rather than rejected, discounted, dismissed and exiled and ignored. Um, That was kind of my experience a lot as a kid. Um, so that would be one. Or for another person, maybe it's about they're anxious deep down inside. You know, So for them, feeling safer or more relaxed or more protected or uh, having more grit inside could deal with that particular issue. Or maybe it's a person who's prone to depression or they're very driven or they've got issues around addictions of one kind or another. Looking there for wholesome experiences of reward like gratitude or gladness or accomplishment or healthy pleasure, really taking it in so it fills that hole inside. some. Um, that's what a person can do in their early 20s, you know, late teens, early 20s, that key period. And what happens then, which I love, is to me it's an act of cultural disobedience. In a sense, you become, uh, as you grow this unconditional sense of safety, uh, rather than and and peace inside, rather than you know fear and anger. Um, as you grow this sense inside, in terms of our need for satisfaction, you know subcortex and so forth. As it grows, sense of contentment and fulfillment that's in your bones already. And as you grow inside yourself, more sense of connection with other people and an ability to be both assertive and kind together. That's a sweet spot. As you grow that, you're a lot harder to manipulate. You're harder to manipulate with fear, with greed, uh, you know, and rewards dangled in front of you, and manipulate around us versus them tribalisms, because we're very vulnerable to that, given our, you know, Stone Age heritage. Uh, and I love that fact this idea of becoming truly independent and having an unconditional sense of, in three words, peace, contentment, and love, lizard, mouse, and monkey, as it were, inside us. And I, could change the world. Honestly, if you get a, imagine a billion brains or some critical mass that's a tipping point, that's rested in this unconditional sense of underlying well-being, dealing with the challenges of life. You know, it could help our planet have a softer landing by the end of the century than the one that's aimed at currently. I,
1: I think we're both uh, doing what we know how to do to, uh, to increase some consciousness and some awareness and maybe reduce that forgetfulness because there's a lot going on so all right let's say that i'm 23 years old and okay i'm going back to when i was 23 years old i was pretty angry um that happens a lot i didn't exactly have less of bullying in my childhood and whatever um wasn't wasn't particularly bad but uh, certainly didn't feel that good when i was a kid and at the same time you have uh you have these desires okay you know you're in your early 20s pretty much. Meeting members of the opposite sex is is going to be a pretty prime uh, pretty prime driver for you at that time as as it should be for the survival of the species like that's kind of hardwired um, you're also probably out partying quite a bit so if we' were to boil it down and there's a bunch of people listening who are like with notepads right now probably ready to write this down, what are the three direct activities that you would say someone ought to do in that age range every day that's going to help them achieve those goals because it's still a little bit too. Academic, sort of of the things you said there, they make great sense, but how do I couple that to action? Yeah. So it's like, do I wake up? Do I meditate? Do I, uh, you know, what what do I do?
3: No, it's great. And I'm I'm really with the action thing. I mean, that's what I do for a living. I'm, you know, very, I think of myself as a methods guy. Um, So one, half a dozen times a day when you're going through your day, it's an ordinary day, right? And you have an, a moment where you're experiencing something that feels good to you. It's not going to be a million dollar moment on the zero to ten intensity scale. It'll be a one or a two. It'll be a moment of you of well being. You you get you get up you get you know you get dressed whatever you look at yourself you go I feel kind of good. Take a moment let that sink in you know. You're driving to work. You have some guys a real ass, you know, next to you. I grew up in L.A. I've done a lot of commuting. Um, Something happens. And instead of losing your cool, you ride it out. You know, you have a moment of like, hey, man, I can be chill. Whatever your deal is, it's on you. You feel strong and integrated and whole. Take a moment. Let that sink in. Don't waste it. So that would be my first suggestion. You know, don't go through a day. Without roughly half a dozen, there's no magic number, moments where you just gave it a dozen seconds to really receive and enjoy the experiences that you're having, the beneficial experiences. I I can't tell you, Dave, how many people I say that to. It sounds so obvious. Why not? We're talking less than three minutes, five minutes a day total. um, And people don't do it. You know, I do it now because I really have that attitude. It becomes uh, a habit of internalizing the beneficial experiences that we're actually having. So that would be my first suggestion.
1: So, so counting and noticing will come with these micro-wins or these little yeah. times where you're like, okay, that was good, and just, yeah.
3: okay. Or pleasure. You. there you are hang, hanging with friends. You know, you felt like a shy, dorky kid, except now as, as an adult, your friends are including you. It feels good. You know, let it land. Most people are unbelievably out of touch with their own experience. You know, show up for your experience and don't, then just don't have it but actually receive it, really, really take it in, which I think is especially important for men because we guys don't tend to orient around receiving. We orient around penetrating in one way or another <laughs> uh, rather than receiving psychologically. And it's really important to just receive it, feel it, let it sink in. Nobody needs to know you're doing it, doesn't mean you're a wuss, just take it in. Okay? All right. That'd be Great my so first that. big suggestion. That's number one. Yep. All right. Number two, pick one thing that you're trying to grow in your in your mind these days you're trying to develop psych you know resilience confidence um more restraint more self-control That you don't just spout off let's say uh you know more balance in your life you know stop at two beers for example stuff like that what are you more motivation to exercise what are you trying to grow in your life right pick one thing you know, It doesn't need to be the world's greatest thing. Often there's an intuition in people, what would really help if I felt it more? What does my heart really long for? What was missing in my childhood, or my last job, my last relationship? Um, Or, you know, these are different clues as to what's your, you know, in a sense, magic medicine. What's that nutrient, that mental nutrient that's gonna make a lot of difference for you these days? Okay? So, know what that is. Just pick one, pick one. It's okay to have two. But it's good to have you know, keep it short keep it simple pick it and then look for experiences over the course of your day to have that that look for opportunities rather to have that experience based on facts you're not deluded you're not making it up and then help it really sink in i want to tell a personal story about that to make the point so when i grew up uh, my parents were loving and decent but both poor at empathy so the normal needs to feel seen, understood, tuned into, it's pretty much a thin suit for me growing up. And then I was very young going through school, late birthday, and I skipped a grade. So, and that plus my kind of dorkiness. Uh, it led to lots of experiences of feeling um, like I was looking at everybody else through a wall of glass. Uh, nothing horrible compared to what many people experienced, but serious, it had consequences. So when I hit my late teens, when I went to college at 16, I realized that, wow. Me, me too, by the way. All right. Brother. There you are, brother. Anyway, I I uh, stumbled on this great fact, which is that if I just noticed when I was actually included in a very ordinary way, yo, dude, let's get some pizza, you know, a girl would smile at me in the elevator. Uh, I would just be sitting at the cafeteria with my people in my dorm hall, you know, whatever it was. Uh, when I was having those opportunities, I recognized these are high value for me. This is, it's as if I had scurvy and I needed vitamin C. Iron, B, protein, nice but didn't do the trick. I need vitamin C. I needed these experiences that would make a big difference for me. So I would look for them privately. Nobody knew I was doing it, I was still cool. Uh, but inside myself, several times a day, I would look for those moments, five, 10, 20 seconds at a time, to feel what was missing for me in my childhood, to feel included and valued. Right. That was a key experience for me. And so would be my second concrete suggestion to a person, you know, know what your vitamin C is. Pick one thing. It's OK for it to evolve over time. And then every day is an opportunity to work that muscle a little bit, you know, filling that hole in your own heart gradually over time. That makes an enormous difference for people. And some of the methods I teach, you know, the book goes into a lot of detail about the how of it. It's really a manual for how to change your brain for the better. You know, you can apply. This is
1: which book? We talked about five-year book. Hardwiring Happiness. Hardwiring Happiness.
3: Okay. Yeah, it's a manual for how to change your brain for the better, which you can apply to any kind of change that you want to develop in yourself. Okay. The third thing I would suggest for people goes to this model, you know, I kind of started talking about of evolution. The brain has been built from the bottom up, reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, primate human cortex on top which loosely links to our three needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, lizard, mouse, and monkey. So in effect, we need to pet the lizard, feed the mouse, and hug the monkey to really summarize a lot of material. So if you think about that, what I do most days, and a person could do this when they get up in the morning or as they head for bed, take a minute or two and kind of reset yourself in each one of those three primal needs. In other words, take a moment to establish a basic sense of safety, realistic safety, sense of protection, relaxation, inner strength. I'm tough enough to deal with the challenges in my life, which also which helps create safety, so that you establish, in a word, a kind of baseline of peace, kind of basic peacefulness. Then contentment. You know, establish a sense of needs for satisfaction being met. Your life's not perfect, but there's stuff you're grateful for, you're glad about. There's food in the refrigerator. You know, there's compared to so many, we live better today. The ordinary person in Western countries lives better today than kings and queens a century ago. You know, enjoy that fact. You know, establish a basic sense of contentment. Now you've fed your little mouse inside. And then in terms of hugging the monkey, take a moment, tune into the people who care about you, tune into the feeling of being cared about and the feeling of caring about others. Establish a basic sense of love, you know, peace, contentment and love. Uh, in your own way, in your guyish way if you're a guy or your not guyish way if you're not a guy. Um, however it is for you, kind of it's like a reset. I think of it a little bit like football players, you know, big games that pound each other hur, 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 going out. I think it was peace, hur, tell me hur, love, ready to go, rip, uh, rip, and then <laughs> boom, you got it. You've kind of grounded yourself and helping it sink in. Um, you do that again and again and again, any single time you do these methods, it's not going to usually be transformational but the gradual accumulation of learning this much from your experience rather than nothing from the experiences you're having and also the gradual accumulation of especially internalizing um, these key experiences you know your personal vitamin c over the course of a day let alone a week a month a year these increments between learning something versus learning nothing from your experiences, completely steepens the trend uh, as you go through your day in your life.
1: Okay, that, that's definitely actionable stuff people can do. Yep. Now, you also write about uh, adult children. Uh, like, uh, What is an adult child and, and, and how do you help them?
3: You mean your own or when you are, we're all, well, those of us who are adults are also adult children. What do you well, mean?
1: Well, I think it, it's more that one where you get adults who are kind of stuck in in their child patterns. And I I, I see this sometimes with coaching clients and, and I see it sometimes in business relationships where like, you know, if, if our companies were people, you would be codependent. <laughs> like right. we're, we're not going to, we're not going to do a partnership like that. It, it's not going to work. Um, and I, I've seen that over and over, especially in the health space yeah. uh, where like, like, Clear boundaries and things like that don't happen. And when you kind of unwrap that, what you're, you're seeing is you're seeing adult entrepreneurs mm-hmm. um, who are acting like really like, like children whose needs didn't get met. Like, how, how do these things map from childhood into adulthood? And, and how do you help someone you see that kind of behavior, whether it's a friend or it's a colleague?
3: Yeah. Um, so, two things. Um, first, like I've done a lot of business consulting too. So, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm you know, I know what you're talking about. A great question that I said earlier is, what if it were more present? What resource could address this challenge or this vulnerability? What if it were more present in the mind of that executive or that person or that 23 year old would make all the difference in the world? And then you go after building it. That's the key question. And again, Dave, you know, I've been in the world of um, human potential psychology for 35 plus years, and I see again and again, we don't ask that question. We don't ask it of ourselves for our own growth. We don't tend to ask it about other people. What resource, what mental resource would make all the difference in the world? People are completely at loss. They're spinning around. You know, and then you go into the inquiry with that executive, what resource would make a difference? And then you look for, okay, now that I know what I'm trying to grow in this guy's brain, this person's brain, what trait am I trying to grow? Traits are grown from states. We develop ourselves, we become better and better in various ways by having experiences of those traits, which are then internalized and installed in the brain, right? So you work backwards, it's like reverse engineering. Uh, What am I trying to grow in myself? Or you can look at other people who are really successful in a way that this person isn't and ask yourself, what are they doing that he's not doing or she's not doing? What mental resource is present there that's making a difference? And then how can this person over here who's struggling grow that resource inside themselves? That's the trickiest question. Once you have the answer to it, then it's pretty straightforward usually to look for experiences that would have some or all of that particular uh, mental muscle you're trying to grow in the person, and then you can take it in. So um, 1.2, very often I think of what really, what we see in people are strategies that are basically designed to avoid the dreaded experience. In other words, yeah. So, the, and if you think of that as a formulation, it helps you really understand your own issues and other people's issues. What's the function this behavior or this attitude or this opinion or this defensiveness is serving? And fundamentally, it's about usually avoiding the risk of a dreaded experience. Typically, because you had those experiences when you were younger, or you saw people having them, or you imagined that they're, but for the grace of God, go I that could happen to me. And, oh man, I can't have that. It's anathema. So then the question becomes what resource would make you willing to risk the dreaded experience? So then you're no longer living your life really small. We live life in our little tiny corrals or meadows fenced in by the experiences we don't want to risk having. But if we're more willing to risk those experiences like you do with your kids, you teach them to risk the experience of failure. That's fantastic. That's so wise. Um, then they can live life not so tightly boxed in to avoid uh, touching those electrical wires uh, in their in this case, let's say, a failure. Um, and I find when people know what they're avoiding, right, and then the resource that would help them um, take that risk, then they can grow that resource inside, like a little more confidence, a little more ability to feel relaxed and not so anxious, little more internalized felt sense of being loved and approved of and cared about and respected by other people. These are all really ancient primal resources for us as social mammals. Um, When we have that inside, then we risk the dreaded experience at the next step. Set yourself up to succeed here. Don't, Risk the dreaded experience of being crushed by a male authority figure by going in and yelling at your boss that he ought to give you a big raise. Like, no, that's a 10. Start with ones and twos and threes. But when it goes well, and it almost always goes well, and when you kind of resource yourself, internalize, take in that good, that it actually went well when you risk the dreaded experience. And step by step, then you will push back the fences of your corral so you can live life, you know, more fully.
1: Very well put. There's uh, something that, that I've heard a few people talk about that, that I find irritating, and, and it's the idea of a happiness set point. Uh, okay. Like, you know, we're, we're designed to have a certain amount of happiness, and no matter what you do, it's kind of a set point. Yeah. Is that real? Do you? No. Do you okay. <laughs> so we're There's in agreement sh- on that. Okay, t- tell me about the happiness set point. Let's crush yeah.
3: that. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there are two points. First of all, like, so much social science research they find something about averages of groups, right? Like, or uh, and then they generalize it to everybody. There, it is true. This is the term that the hedonic treadmill. You know that term as well. The idea that you know you win the lottery and whatever your baseline of happiness was, you're kind of back to it for better or worse, you know, a year later. Or you're in a terrible car accident, you're paralyzed from the waist down. But you're back to wherever you, your baseline was a year later. So, the argument, the takeaway from that is that it's pointless to try to become happier in this broad sense that we're using, not just giddy because you won the lottery, but an underlying bone deep sense of unshakable um, well being, resilience, and peace of mind. That's what I mean by happiness. And so, um, the research on the other hand shows, and there's an actual research paper that people can find the Google, it, it's well written, it's accessible, called Beyond the Hedonic Treadmill. And it points out, first of all, that the treadmill is negatively biased. It takes a lot longer to come back to baseline after a bad event than people return to it after a good event. Second, uh, there are subgroups. Some people, yeah, they don't probably learn from their experiences. You know, things happen, they don't become happier over time, they don't, or put it, the other way, they don't become less anxious or angry or, de- or, or sad or hurt or depressed or ashamed of themselves, insecure and inadequate over time. But there's a subgroup of people who clearly learn from their useful experiences. And when we study people like that, we tend to find that they are intuitively, kind of informally doing the methods that I'm describing because they're helping themselves internalize their beneficial experiences to gradually change their set point over time. And um, I think that to sum up, if you just think about it, in our own lives, and also we look around the world, we see all kinds of people that are a lot happier today than they were 10, 20 years ago. I'm enormously more kind of awash in well-being today than I was 10 years ago, let alone you know 30 years ago. And um, I think it's important for people to have confidence that their efforts to change their brain for the better a handful of times every day a handful of seconds at a time will actually bear fruit and they can have confidence both in you know from ordinary examples around us and also from neuroimaging studies that show that structures in the brain actually yeah. change for the better over the time as people do various practices. Even everybody asks me this question, how little can I get away with? All right, I'm I'm there, I'm there, I'm there myself, I'm the same way. And honestly, new um, changes in function occur within seconds in the brain and changes in structure occur within minutes based on our experiences and um, for better or worse, remembering that the brain has changed much more quickly by negative experiences. Uh, than by positive ones. That's that negativity bias of the brain that helped our ancestors survive really, really tough conditions, right? But uh, even, you know, for example, studies let alone beyond 10 minutes, like an eight week course in mindfulness, measurably changes the brain for the better. Lifetime practices of positive psychology or personal development of one kind or another, making yourself bulletproof as it were over time by developing yourself from the inside out, um, actually measurably, changes the brain. And there's a lot of research now about this.
1: I have my SPECT scans from uh, Daniel Amen from yeah. more than a dozen years ago. Yeah. Uh, he said it, it looked like I had the, the brain of a street drug addict, uh, because of, of toxic environmental exposures and stress and you know a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And I just redid my scan. And, and funny, I have a, a normal brain now. Let's see? Uh, so it, it, you absolutely Ten. can change those things. Like there wasn't metabolic activity and now there is. And, and that's why the happiness subpoint point people say, you know, you're, it doesn't matter what you do. You're you're sort of helpless. You're only gonna be as happy as you are. I, I, I just flat out reject that. Like it's not in the data. It's not in my yeah. own experience. And, and if you believe that, it actually takes away your power to change. Because if you yeah. don't think you can change your mind, you probably can't.
3: Yeah, that's completely right. Um, you're still gonna have the ups and downs of life, Sure. right? Um, I think of a metaphor for equanimity as walking evenly over uneven ground. You know, then there's going to be some change. You know, you're going to feel different things. But in your core, in your bones, is there an increasingly unconditional internal sense in three broad words, peace, contentment and love, lizard, mouse and monkey. And that's the opportunity for us.
1: Is there a value in sticking electrodes on your head and, and quantifying some of these yeah. states like the quantified self crowd? And I'm, I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. I've had my own EEG since 1997. Yeah. Uh, it, in your experience 35 years a lot more experience than mine. Uh, it, is that a helpful thing to, to teach people peace contentment happiness love kindness compassion forgiveness gratitude all, all the good stuff or Is that more just a distraction?
3: I think there are like three really good questions embedded <laughs> <Nice>. in that. <laughs> All
1: right. D- yeah. d- is neurofeedback useful? That, that's one yeah. question. What is
3: the self? Yeah. And should we bother <laughs> to teach positive states of mind, right? You know, uh, states of being really. Um, yes, yes, and yes. Or yes, and no, and yes. Um, so let me think. So first off, let's be clear that we're not talking about Pollyanna. We're not talking about, you know, look look at the world through rose-colored glasses. Yeah, we're actually probably. talking about taking off your smog-colored glasses. Having grown up in LA you know, many years ago <laughs> when the smog was even worse than today. Uh, in other words, we're negatively biased. So it's to see the world clearly, including seeing yourself clearly. For many people, seeing themselves in positive, realistic ways is a taboo. To feel like a basically good person, it's like, woo! I can feel like you're a basically good person, but to feel like I'm a basically good person, Whoa, that's a little different. So um, what, what I'm really talking about is taking ordinary experiences over a day of accomplishment, of feeling connected, of loving kindness in your own heart, of insight, uh, wisdom, um, feeling that life is worth living, these deep and important experiences, and not wasting them, but actually in skillful ways, Getting good at hacking your own brain, you know, reprogramming from the inside out is what I'm really talking about. Drawing upon ordinary beneficial experiences, which are usually enjoyable in everyday life. So I think that's enormously worth doing. In other words, if the drug companies, for example, based on the research proven benefits of a positive mood, positive emotions, positive outlook, you know, realistically optimistic outlook, for example, there's so much research on the of increasing longevity, the help for dealing with illness and prevention of illness in the first place, that if Merck or Pfizer could give us the blue pill, you know, like in the Matrix, and um, help us be happier, we would be seeing ads for the blue pill every night on television because of the research benefits. So when people sneer at happiness, I don't get it. I think it's profoundly foolish. And I think there's some professional grumps out there who make a living trying to debunk you know, positive psychology or human potential or self-improvement. And I think it's deeply misguided and weird. Like, why would you want to do that? So, (laughs) numero uno. You know, dose, neurofeedback. I'm a fan. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, 10, 20 years from now, a standard class for aspiring therapists will involve, you know, neurofeedback type devices. It's like a lot of new technologies. There's a middle path between dogmatic dismissal and quackery that now I've yeah. got, you know, I've got a cure for everything. There's a middle place. I follow the middle place. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah. And, you know, I'm very pragmatic about it. You know, what's what's going to produce bottom line a state of being, which is mapped to an underlying brain state that's useful to me? Does it work for me to, you know, when I'm in bed, peace, contentment, love? Cool. That works. <laughs> Does it work yep. for me to hook up to a Holosync device and kind of tune in or do one of your trainings? Great. I'm fine with that. Over time, um, you know, the traditional metaphor of the raft, you want to cross a river of suffering. You build a raft, gets you to the other side. But when you're on the other side, you no longer carry the raft around in your head. Right. You don't you you move away from those methods becomes more and more internalized. Right. So I think, yeah, I think that often happens for people with neurofeedback. That's okay. the
1: goal—not to hook yourself up every day, but just yeah. to uh, even just to do it for a little while, That's learn right. the new state. Yeah. And and for me, it, what I learned was basically having the equivalent of a lie detector on was exactly this this negativity bias you're talking about. Yeah. W- when you start taking off the smog-colored glasses, you're like, wait, I was actually lying to myself about how bad that was. It it, it kind of sucked, but there was actually a positive side to it that I had completely glossed over and ignored. Yeah. And so my own practice is that when you know I'm working to forgive something or take something that I, I interpreted really negatively, I always have to find the one good thing, even if it's very small, that came so that you can sort of drop some of the negativity thing. And I didn't know how to do that until I had a computer telling me, to, stop lying to yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Uh, so for me, that was kind of a big breakthrough. But the way you describe it as a negativity bias, uh, maybe it makes more sense than saying a lie detector told me I was deceiving myself that everything sucked.
3: So. <laughs> Well, it's good to appreciate that. Uh, it made sense for our ancestors, you know, to yeah. look for bad news. This is the negativity bias in a nutshell. We tend to scan for bad news. We isolate down upon it. We tend to ignore everything. Whereas when we see good news, we tend to see the whole field. But any kind of pain or threat, we hyper focus on it. We react more intensely to it. The brain will react more intensely to a negative stimulus than to an equally intense positive stimulus. And then we fast track the whole package in memory. That's really much my focus. We, boom, boom, you know, we learn faster from pain than from pleasure. We remember negative things about others more than positive things. Negative interactions in a relationship have more consequences than positive ones. We need at least to, you know, three, four, or five times as many positive interactions in our relationships than negative ones. Otherwise, that's a huge predictor for a relationship breakup. A lot of research on that. Um, and then what happens is, over time, those negative experiences sensitize the brain to the negative. Cortisol, the stress hormone coming up from negative experiences, sensitizes the amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain, and also weakens another part of the brain, the hippocampus, that calms down the alarm bell and puts things in context. And the hippocampus also tells the hypothalamus, quit calling for stress hormones. The, point, the takeaway point here is, you know, feel the stress you need to feel, but don't indulge uh, more stress than you need to feel because it's actually damaging your brain over time. It's literally cortisol kills neurons in the hippocampus, so it's less able over time to perform its function. So yeah, that's the negativity bias in a nutshell. And Maybe it makes sense if you're in a combat zone or you grow up in what's like a combat zone. But for most people today, It's like a universal, well-intended learning uh, disability—the result of having a brain designed for peak performance in Stone Age conditions. Uh,
1: Very well said.
3: Yeah. Now we're also the self. By the way, I think the self is more, much more distributed. And uh, yeah, let's do that really fast. Yeah, yeah, because you're into it. It's cool. Yeah. So I, the word self gets used two ways, and it's really important to distinguish. One way it's used conventionally is that there's an entity looking out through our eyes. It's the I inside, the letter I, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's an assumption in Western psychology, culture, philosophy, and so forth, that 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 I really exists, right? That there's this enduring unified entity somewhere inside us, the little homunculus, right, looking out through the Mm -hmm. eyes. And the other way the word self is used is the person altogether, okay? the person altogether. So I think the person altogether definitely exists, and there's a lot of you know neuroscience that supports that. I think that person, I think the experience of person-ness or person-name, as process is nested in a whole wide network of things, not just in the brain. Right? Yeah. Now that said, the self, the notion that there's this en- enduring, uh, independent, unified entity inside looking out, nope. You cannot find that in your own experience and you cannot find that in brain scans. That's one of the very cool areas where neuroscience I think is a connection with deep, ancient, contemplative, usually Eastern tradition wisdom. You know, you cannot find, you can find localization of function for all kinds of stuff in the brain, like language comprehension, language production, moving your left little pinky. There's a place inside your brain that's in charge of that. Think about the sense of self, that very deep, almost intractable, Presumption that there really is an entity looking out through the eyes. You, where wouldn't that be localized somewhere? No, that's yeah, not. You know, it's not, and you can't find a place where it is. You know, which I think changes a lot of different things.
1: And I'm working on uh, setting up uh, some technology at uh, Bulletproof Labs up here in my backyard, where you wear VR goggles mm-hmm. and you have a camera mounted far up behind you. Yeah. So your sense of self suddenly isn't in your body because you can play yourself like a video game, yeah. Which completely shifts that that idea that it has to be in here. You're like, well, wait, now it's not in there. And I, like when that thing down there, which is actually my body, moves, I can see that I'm moving it, but I don't feel like I'm even yeah. in it. So so th- there's some weird stuff going on in there, and I'm uh, yeah. uh, I'm I'm in alignment with you on on that. You you can't find that in there, but yeah. there's certainly the perception of it.
3: Yeah, exactly right. I mean, people should be careful about doing that if they're prone to dissociation, You know, if they've had a lot of trauma, for example. That's true. a
1: really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. I um, fortunately haven't. I think I'll, I'll be fine on it, but I won't put any, any yeah. PTSD people in it. Uh, yeah. A uh, very good point. Yeah. Now, um, we're running up on the end of the show, which is too bad because we could probably talk for another hour at least, but there's a question that I ask everyone, and I think you're going to have a fantastic answer for it. And it's, uh, given all the stuff you know, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, I want to kick more ass at life, I want to be better at everything, what are the three most important things I should know?
2: Hmm.
3: That's great. You really serve a lot of people, Dave.
1: Oh, thank you. Period.
3: You know, and a question like that really serves. Um, I think the first thing to know is you really can change yourself and your world for the better over time. You're not dead in the water, you know, you can be a hammer in your own life, not just a nail, if only inside your own head. That sense of, you know, getting on your own side, being for yourself and realizing that you can actually bit by bit, day by day, you know, change things for the better, minimally in terms of how you experience things. Maybe you can't change your circumstances. Maybe you're stuck in that wheelchair. Maybe you've got to work those two jobs to support your family and send money home to your relatives, okay. But maybe you took a bad turn uh, in your 20s, you know, and now you gotta deal with the lifetime consequences in your 40s, all right. But you can always improve your experience of things. You can always develop more wisdom, more compassion, more contentment, uh, more love over time. Know that in your bones. That was one of the absolute most important things for me to know when I was growing up, that there was stuff I could do over time that would lead to a better place. Um, You're never, I'm with Captain Kirk. I reject the Kobayashi Maru scenario. (laughs) Nice. You never have a no-win scenario, if only inside your own mind. That's the really important thing to know. Second thing to know is you have a good heart. Know that you have a good heart. That's so hard. It's like the last taboo to claim the knowing of your own good heart.
1: In 250 episodes, you're the first guy to say that. All right. Mine. it's good that's yeah. good. I like that one
3: yeah to know it like for a lot of people there's a kind of doubt or shame or mm-hmm. sure maybe you're imperfect maybe you did that bad thing maybe you kicked that dog not to make light of kicking dogs obviously you know whatever I mean I'm I have remorse. I regret over certain things I've done. I don't think you get to. that. If you're not remorseful about something in your life, you haven't lived large enough.
1: Or you have some serious issues. Yeah,
3: or you're a sociopath. <laughs> exactly. You no, know, exactly. Even Hannibal the <laughs> cannibal. Not a good thing. You know what I mean? If you don't have any remorse, that's a warning sign anyway. Yeah. But to know you have a good heart, I think for people to really own that uh, and to live from your own good heart tends to besides feeling good innately, it's benevolent for others, and it also creates positive cycles with others. If you know, if you live from the knowing of your own good heart, people tend to respond more to your good heart, and then that helps you feel even more comfortable living from your own good heart. So I'll do that. Hmm. And then this is a big three. You know, it's like the wizard says you get three wishes. What are your yep. three wishes? Yeah. And I think the last thing I would say um, to kick ass in life, as it were, is uh, okay. The wonderful and dreadful truth is you're a bit player in most people's dramas. In other words, it's mostly not about you. Uh, you can make the offering, you know, you can um, water the fruit tree, as it were, you can tend to the causes, you cannot control the results of other people's responses to you. You know, I think of 10,000 causes upstream in this moment at all times. And most of what's determining whether your book succeeds, your business succeeds, your new business endeavor succeeds, what have you, uh, is really out of your hands. It's about other people. So all you can do is focus on making wise efforts yourself. Make your own offering yourself, realizing that um, most people's reactions are not about you directly. They're about them in one way or another, which makes you kind of freer. Uh, And you're less oriented around, you know, trying to collect rewards from others. I I think of the saying, pursue excellence, ignore fame. You know, be thoughtful about what's going to lead to more success and, you know, positive response in the marketplace and so forth. But don't get attached to it because, wow, praise and blame come and go. Right. But wise efforts over time pay off.
1: Wow, was that, that a fantastic answer to that question, so th- thanks, Rick.
3: Thank you. Rick? Ad hoc, I had no idea it was coming. It was good. Good for you, Dave.
1: Uh, that, that was that was really, uh, really well said. I, I appreciate that. I'm gonna have to to play that back and listen to it a couple of times to make sure I absorb it all. Uh, will you tell listeners where they can find out more info about your book, where they can find your work? I mean, you're doing a lot of stuff. Where should people go to learn all the things that you're doing?
3: Thank you. Best place is my website, Rick Hanson net and it's SON, rickhanson.net. That's the simplest way. There's tons of freely offered resources. And if I could mention it, I've got a very cool uh, program called the Foundations of Wellbeing. It basically is about growing 12 key strengths, 12 muscles basically, inside your brain, um, like self-caring, motivation, courage, aspiration, things like that. So people can check that out. Uh, but yeah, Rick Hansen, SON.net.
1: All right, thank you, Rick Hansen, for being on Bulletproof
3: Radio. Thank you very much, Dave. Truly, this was, this was really good, and I appreciate
1: it. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun for me as well, and that's, that's why I do this. It, it's like I'd have these conversations if no one was listening, we just happen to have an audience this time, which, which hopefully benefited from hearing this. Yeah. And speaking of that, if you did benefit from this, which I thought this was an awesome interview, So uh, tell a friend or just pick up your phone and click subscribe on iTunes, which helps uh, me show people, yeah, people really are listening to this and helps the show succeed. And while you're at it, have some Bulletproof coffee because, hey, it'll make you kick ass all day. Have an awesome day and I'll see you on the next episode.